This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, listen, we all love a night out, right? Whether it's seeing our favorite band in person or being there in the crowd to show on our favorite team with my pals at Vivid Seats. You can attend the concert or the show or the sporting event of your choice, and you can do so at an amazing price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all live events that you want to go to. You can sort by price, or you can look for seats in the section and row of your choice. And every purchase is backed by a 100% guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, my pals at Vivid Seats have it all. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com. Remember, Vivid Seats was our sponsor of Smack Off 25. They know how to do it. All Vivid Seats confirmed orders are backed by a 100% guarantee, and Vivid Seats offers great prices and an easy purchasing experience. I use Vivid Seats. You should, too. And I don't know about you, but there have been some times, a few times with athletes, where I said, hey, if you didn't want to do it, I wouldn't take offense. Just don't do it. But don't show up here to waste my time and waste the time of all the other professionals behind the scenes, the lighting people, the camera people. Let's get out of here. I did that a couple of times. I stopped the interview, said, you know what? This is not professional. If you won't respect us, we don't respect you. Take a hike. What's cracking? We're back with yet another iconic episode of the Jim Rome Podcast. And I say iconic this time because we are offering up one of the true icons in our business. I know we say that pretty often, but this one cannot be overstated. Our guest for Ep 87 of the pod is an 11-time host of the Olympics on NBC, an eight-time National Sportscaster of the Year, a three-time Emmy Award winner, the 1999 recipient of the Kirk Gowdy Award, the 2012 Walter Cronkite Award winner, and just last year, he was inducted into the broadcaster's wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. He is the 2018 Ford Frick Award honoree and a current voice of the MLB Network. Of course, I'm talking about the legendary Bob Costas. You think this guy can't tell a hell of a story. We will get into his early days, his rise to the top, and his recent exit from NBC after nearly four decades. And we'll throw down another 10 to 20 other topics for good measure. Take it all in and enjoy because episode 87 of the Jim Rohn Podcast is coming at you right now. Now, Bob, I don't know if I'm about to mischaracterize this. I know you will let me know if I do, but I do have to ask, how is life in semi-retirement? Well, I'm doing baseball, which is pretty much what I would have been doing at this time of the year. Anyway, um, the only thing that was missing this year from what I had been doing for many years at NBC were the Triple Crown horse races. So it's not that much different. And I'd left football a few years ago. And I imagine that next year or shortly thereafter, I'll go back to doing some of the things I used to do in my career earlier at HBO and at NBC, long-form interviews, journalistic stuff related to sports. So uh, I wouldn't say that I've retired or even semi-retired, but I would say that Uh, I'll be doing a little bit less than back in the day when it seemed like I was doing almost everything at NBC. 
All right, that's what I'm getting at. Now, you mentioned baseball. You've covered every sport. You've covered every major event. I mean, there's nothing you haven't seen or done, but you made no bones about it. You said it the day you were given the Ford Frick Award and you went into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Baseball comes first. Baseball comes mm-hmm. first. Why baseball, Bob? And when did you first know that? I think I knew that when I was a kid. Uh, I was a fan of almost all sports, but baseball was when I was becoming aware of sports, late 1950s, through the 60s, baseball was still the unquestioned national pastime. As recently as the 80s, baseball games, Saturday afternoon baseball game of the week that I would do with Tony Kubek or Vin did with Joe Garagiola, they would often get ratings as high as what hit television shows in prime time get now. Game 7 of the 1986 World Series got a rating somewhere in the 30s, the Red Sox and the Mets, against a Monday night football game, Washington against the Giants, that got single digits head-to-head against it, which would not happen today. So in the generation that I grew up, baseball was still the national pastime. Um, And I grew up in New York. There were a lot of great sports broadcasters, every sport, but especially baseball that I heard, and they kind of seeped in. And to me, uh, the broadcasts were inseparable from the games themselves. So I think I got hooked on baseball and on broadcasting at about the same time. I was going to say, it's not just the sports. I mean, you grew up listening and watching sports and sports broadcasting, as you point out. And it's not necessarily what they said, but also how they said it. So mm-hmm. you listened and watched intently growing up. Who were some of the sports broadcasters that you admired most when you were young? Well, even though I grew up on Long Island, around New York for the most part, For a year and a half, in the early 1960s, when I was eight, nine years old, we lived in Redondo Beach, California. And so I listened to Scully. I was one of those kids who had the transistor radio under his pillow. When I went to games, not at Dodger Stadium, but at the old Coliseum where the Dodgers played at first when they came west, you couldn't take two steps without hearing Vin on somebody's transistor radio, partly because Vin was so popular, but also because the Coliseum was so oddly configured for baseball that in most of the seats you couldn't really see the game all that well, so you needed a guide. So to me, Scully was, I think, the first one who really made an impression on me. Uh, And then after that, uh, Jim McKay, Jack Whitaker, Jack Buck, Uh, I liked Lindsey Nelson when the Mets came into existence and Lindsey was doing the Met games. Marty Glickman was the wonderful voice of the Giants on the radio in football, and he practically invented the way basketball was called on the radio. Marv Albert learned it from him, so Marty Glickman was the voice of the Knicks. Uh, those are some of the people. You know, Bob, it's amazing that you describe Vince Scully that way because I was actually going to volunteer my own point and say, I grew up in Los Angeles as well. Well, you didn't, but you were here. But I did grow up in Los Angeles, and I would go to bed every single night, quote, with the transistor radio under the covers. I know that you have always held Vin in the highest regard. And to me, this is not some crazy hot take for 2019. I'm going to argue that Vin is the best to ever do it. But in your opinion, what makes Vin, Vin? Well, it's a combination of things. First, the command of the language. Also, just the sound of his voice. He said wonderful things, wonderfully phrased, uh, perfectly paced. But even if he was just saying the most mundane thing, reading a promo or giving you somebody's batting average, the sound of his voice was so distinctive and so pleasing. The instrument that he brought to it gave him a leg up to begin with. And I think he had this to begin with, this innate sense of the rhythm and pace of a baseball game. But obviously he refined it as the years went by 
And then I think, crucially, there's this. Especially in the last two decades of his fantastic career, when he was doing the Dodger games, almost always home games, on television, those games were produced and directed inside out. He wasn't following the pictures or the graphics or the replays. They were following him. Now, he would have been great under any circumstances, but they ensured that this great broadcasting artist had the best possible canvas on which to work. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but I, as a broadcaster, and I'd often stay up late on the East Coast to watch the Dodgers, let's say, play the Padres, mostly just to listen to Vin. And one of the things you'd notice, never an extraneous replay, never a shot that detracted from the story Vin was telling. I remember after Don Zimmer passed away a few years ago, and Vin was doing one of his wonderful appreciations of Zimmer's life and career, and Scott Van Slyke was hit by a pitch. There was nobody on base. He was hit by a pitch. He wasn't beamed. The benches didn't empty. It was a hit by a pitch, which we've all seen a thousand times watching baseball. A thousand times out of a thousand on any other telecast, they're going to reflexively replay that hit by pitch, probably from two or three different angles. And then that would truncate Vin's story. But they understood, the people he worked with understood that unless something spectacular or truly controversial happened, in which case Vin himself would pivot, don't get in the way of Vin Scully. So they got out of the way, and he knew what to do with the space he was given. It's an amazing anecdote. That is the highest praise imaginable, and I can't even imagine who else you would afford that too, because there's only one Vin Scully. Now, Bob, I've, you know, having done this as long as I have, I've done thousands and thousands of interviews myself, but I consider you the best to ever do it. Now, there are certain variables that you can control and certain you cannot control in an interview. Mm-hmm. But in your opinion, Bob, what are the more, most critical things to concern yourself with if you want to do a quality interview? I think you would answer the same when it comes to the very first thing, which is preparation. You want to be well-prepared, but you don't want to be so locked into that preparation that you're automatically going to ask question three after question two. You have to be able to listen, and you have to be able to react spontaneously. Something unexpected happens. You've got to be able to go in that direction, and it may be something that you hadn't prepared and you hadn't expected. So you've got to do kind of the grinding work of preparation, but then you've got to be nimble enough to go wherever the conversation takes you. It's well said. Now, what did you think of David Letterman as an interviewer, and what was it like the first time you met him? First time I met David, he had been on the air only a couple of months with his late-night show uh, on NBC following Johnny Carson. So it was the spring of 1982, and he had one of his ideas that later became you know, among his signatures, and this one was elevator races. So he's going to take two people from the studio audience, going to hand them mock Olympic torches, and they were going to race out of the studio on the sixth floor, get on the elevator, go down to the lobby at 30 Rock, run around the block, come back, ascend on the elevators, enter the studio, and whoever got there first would win spectacular prizes. So they needed a sportscaster to do some kind of mock play-by-play of this epic event. And they call down to the sports office, and they're looking for Marv Albert, and he's not there. He's off doing a Nick game or something. So now they're looking for Don Crickey, and he's not around either. And the secretary says, we have this young guy here, Bob Costas. And Letterman's people say, well, we need somebody. Send him up. And so I show up, and to show you how unfamiliar David was with me, he introduced me down in the lobby as Bob Costa. 
Mm. But I sort of got it, you know, where he was coming from and what he wanted. So I did this mock serious thing, and then David invited me up uh, to sit next to him as the show ended and as they were about to go to credits to tell me that he thought it was funny and welcome to the show and that kind of thing. And then after that, uh, I was, I guess, among people who uh, were semi-regulars on his show, sometimes as a guest and sometimes, you know, taking part in sketches like that one. Fun. Really, really good stuff. I remember the first time I did that show, Bob, but I felt like I was sitting in the electric chair. You know, not that Dave had any kind of, I mean, I was there because he wanted me there, but it just, it was so surreal, right? When you grow up watching somebody like that, yeah. and you hold him in such high regard, and all of a sudden you're there and you're with the guy and in the spot. I mean, it was a little unnerving to say the least. Now, when you talk late night shows, you also did a great, great show for NBC back in the day for seven seasons, a show called Later. Mm-hmm. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. I remember you had to sit down with Bruce Springsteen at a time when I felt like, the boss was not doing anything of that sort. What was that first sit-down with Springsteen like? You know, we got a lot of people on later and then after that on the HBO show because they had watched the programs that I had done. You know, entertainers, athletes, people like that tend to stay up late. They have odd hours. The show was on at 1.30 in the morning, Eastern and Pacific time. Uh, no one is channel surfing at that time. If they're watching, they're kind of locked into it. And I think that a lot of those people felt as if this was something worthwhile, that it wasn't like some soundbite thing, it wasn't something superficial, it wasn't an infomercial type thing. It was an honest interview, in some cases almost a video biography if you did the full half hour. And I think Springsteen fell into that category. Um, The first time I met him, he told me that he had watched me many times in late night. He said, yeah, you're on after David Letterman, aren't you? And, again, I think it's important. You can't know everything about everybody, especially with somebody who even by that time, like Springsteen, had such a huge body of work. But if you come in prepared and if you seem to genuinely care and respect the person and their work, which doesn't mean you're fawning over them, as you know, but if you respect them and you respect them enough to have done your homework and they say to themselves, this is worth my time, this is going to be different than if I had just stumbled into some generic interview. Then you're going to get the best of them. Let me talk to you about something for a minute. Is there something which is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression stress, anxiety, relationships, grief, self-esteem, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it's very convenient. So get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy for some reason with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time and no additional charge. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option, and you can get 10% off your first month by going to BetterHelp.com slash Rome. Why not get started right now? Go to BetterHelp.com slash Rome. Simply fill out a questionnaire and get matched up with a counselor you'll love. Go to BetterHelp.com slash Rome. BetterHelp.com slash Rome. You know, I remember also when I did my first TV show on Talk 2, 
That was the show on ESPN2. Bob, it was a one-hour nightly show live, and it was the first TV I'd ever done. Mm -hmm. But of that one hour, Bob, like 38 minutes of it was interview. I don't need to tell you. We know within the first two or three minutes if that person has anything to say or if, in fact, they're going to play ball. Now, this was TV boot camp for me, and I learned. But I got to tell you, there were nights, Bob, where I was out there gassed after seven minutes. I've run through my prep. They're not playing ball, and I know I've got 33 left, and I'm screwed, and I know it. Did you ever find yourself (laughs) in that situation when you hosted later? Or, frankly, did people like that just never end up on the show? No, I had a couple like that. And as you and anybody else who's good at this will tell people who ask, they think the most difficult interviews are the contentious ones. Uh, and they always bring up mine with Vince McMahon, where it appeared he was going to bite my head off. But really, as you know, the most difficult ones are when the person is not forthcoming. Now, I apologize to younger people. This may be a dated reference. But the great character actor, Jack Palance, who won an Oscar uh, for City Slickers with Billy Crystal. And he was, at that point, toward the end of his career, and he had kind of a career revival. This would be in the early to mid-'90s, and he was in his 70s. But he had built a career as this really sort of impressive screen presence, big guy, um, could play the heavy very effectively. Uh, If people are familiar with the classic Western Shane, he plays Jack Wilson, the gunslinger, that Alan Ladd, Shane, has to gun down uh, in the ultimate showdown uh, at the end of the movie. So here's Jack Palance, and they book him on later. And the only reason he does it, he says he doesn't like to do talk shows, the only reason he does it is because Billy Crystal tells him, you should do Bob's show, because Billy and I are friendly. So Palance shows up, he sits down, he looks around, and he says, oh, is this show half an hour? I said, yes, Jack, it is. Oh, I thought it was two or three minutes, like entertainment tonight oh wow i said don't don't worry it'll be fine so there's kind of a rule of thumb you ask a quick question you get a quick answer maybe if you ask a more expansive question it puts the guy in a frame of mind to give an expansive answer so i open up and i say jack one of my favorite movies is the classic western shane if shane comes on the late show someplace you're in a hotel or whatever and shane comes on and you think of yourself as Jack Wilson in that classic role. How do you feel when you see that come on? And his actual answer was, oh, what I think is, where's the remote? I don't want to see the damn thing. Uh-oh. So next question. Jack, you played Mountain Rivera in Requiem for a Heavyweight, a role previously played by Anthony Quinn. Was it daunting to take on the same role as the great Anthony Quinn? Not at all. I didn't see his performance. I doubt that he saw mine. Oh, wow. And it went on like this for a half-hour show. You need 22 minutes of content. Man, that clock ticking, ordinarily it would fly by. It seemed like an eternity. And now we get to the end, and we walk off the set, and he drapes an arm around my shoulder, a giant bear paw of an arm, and he pulls me into his chest. And this is what he says, Bob i got to tell you a great story about Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> oh, man. So, Jack, wow. it would have been a good time to tell that about five minutes ago back there. Oh, wow. That's something else. Yeah, that's great, Jack. Thanks. Thanks for nothing. Yeah, yeah no, I'm glad. I'm not glad that that happened, Bob, but I'm glad that even that kind of thing might happen to you. It's so true. I've, I've been there, and that's... Well, why are you here anyway if you don't want to do it? Because Billy said it was a good idea, right? 
Yeah, it, you know, that's happened to me a few times, and I don't know about you, but there have been some times, not when it's live, but when it was taped, a few times with athletes where I said, hey, if you didn't want to do it, I wouldn't take offense. Just don't do it. But don't show up here to waste my time and waste the time of all the other professionals behind the scenes, the lighting people, the camera people. Let's get out of here. I, I did that a couple of times. I stopped the interview, said, you know what? This is not professional. If you won't respect us, we don't respect you. Take a hike. No, Bob, I'm glad you said that. I've always felt that way. Like, if the answer is no, that's fine. I understand that. The show's not for everybody. I'm not for everybody. I'd rather you say no than show up and then do the kind of interview you're doing. And by the way, if everybody says yes, I'm not doing my job. So I understand no. I don't take that personally. But coming up and being an a-hole and coming on the show, I do take personally. So, yes, I do understand. So let me ask you, at this point in your life and in your career— how are you approaching social media? For instance, do you participate at all? Do you read what others are saying? Because as we know, when it's good, it can be very good. And when it's bad, it is the biggest cesspool ever. Yep. Uh, and I think the proportion leans toward, if not the cesspool, then toward the stupid, the angry, the uninformed, uh, the superficial at best. So I'm not really drawn to it. And I myself have never been and never will be on Twitter no Facebook presence, no Instagram presence. I just don't see an upside for me. Other people want to do it, fine, but it's just not for me. Snapchat's out too? No, no Snapchat, no. <laughs> you know, you mentioned also, I understand this, you mentioned the Triple Crown races. I always, thought, I always thought that you did a really, really good job of covering the Triple Crown for NBC. Let me ask you this, though. Did you feel any sort of affinity and admiration for the sport and its pageantry at times? Or frankly, was it the next assignment? And did you just treat that the way you would any other assignment? Prepare to the best of your ability and do the best job possible. No, you know, I think NBC did a great job with me in how they used me. And I learned a little bit about horse racing through the years, but I'm certainly not a horse racing expert. I'm not a rail bird. I didn't grow up with that. And so the way they used me was to provide an overview, bring it on the air, set the scene in general terms before turning it over to the experts. And then when they had historical pieces to do or pieces that were appreciations about this jockey or this trainer, then they put me to use there. And I thought that was very, very well planned. They didn't put me in any position where I would be out of my depth, and they used me to the best possible advantage. And that's part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much. I know I wasn't going to go in there and make a fool of myself, at least not most of the time. Sure. Now, the world changes, and with the easing, I'm just jumping around a little bit, Bob, but with the easing of legislation on gambling, how do you think it's going to impact the way we produce and present sports content and then the way we consume and watch games? Well, I think that already uh, there's a lot of content that's presented, if you want it this way, so that you can uh, multitask watching it. You can be watching the game, but you can be following other aspects of it. You can actually produce, in some cases, your own telecast if you want to change camera angles. And certainly uh, gambling is going to be part of that. For years and years, if you're watching, let's say, the Jets play the Bills in a 1 o'clock game Eastern time, and it's three minutes into the game, and then across the bottom of the screen, it says, Patriots nothing, Dolphins nothing, 11.30 to go, Brady, one for three, three yards. <laughs> That's only about fantasy. Tom Brady's mother doesn't care that he's one for three at that point in the game. That's only about fantasy. And you're going to find that, too, uh, with gambling. And I guess it's going to change, if it hasn't already, the way a lot of people view um, games because they'll have their bets within the game. 
They'll have prop bets going on. Theoretically, you could watch a ball game and, and have 25, 30 different bets during the course of the game. So it isn't just the ultimate outcome that you're looking at, either as a fan or even as a gambler the way it used to be. It's all, it's all these little installments along the way. Uh, maybe not for you and me, it's generational, but for, uh, for a lot of people, I guess that's the way they'll follow it. And they'll look at it more, I think, not everybody, but a lot of people will look at it from a transactional standpoint. It'll be, how did my bets go? Uh, as it is for some people now, how is my fantasy team doing? As opposed to, how is this team that I've rooted for since I was a little kid and my favorite player? That might be, that'll never disappear but that might be eclipsed a little bit in the case of some people by, by their gambling interest. You know, Bob, you're right. You and I may not do it that way, but I'm going to be fully transparent. And I've done whatever I could to remain as objective as possible. So for that reason, I don't want to, quote, get down because I'm supposed mm-hmm. to talk about these things objectively. But I've dabbled in it very slightly, you know, not on a big level at all, obviously, but a little bit of in-game, a little bit of micro-betting. It's incredible how different you watch a game when you have some sort of betting interest. I mean, it's almost oh. scary. It's very strange. You know, I grew up with a dad who was a compulsive gambler. And although he made a good living for a guy in the 60s and 70s, uh, the mortgage was often riding on whether Wilt Chamberlain could make two free throws, which was unlikely, or if Whitey Ford could get Al Kaline to ground into a double play. So I know that kind of anxiety. Uh, and for whatever reason, even though he had action going all the time, every sport year-round, it's never gambling has never been a draw for me except for one time, if you've got time for me to tell yes, you Yes, please. Yes, sir. I'm doing the Saturday game of the week with Tony Kubek sometime in the 80s. And so we go to the game on a Friday night at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, and we're going to do the game the next afternoon. And it's July or August, AstroTurf still at Bush Stadium. It's going to be 100 degrees. The game's starting at noon central time, which means it's going to be about 125 degrees on that turf. And we walk out of this Italian restaurant, it's about midnight when we wrap things up. We walk out into the street, and the next day's starting pitcher, who shall remain nameless for the Cardinals, it should be noted, a single man at the time, is walking down the street, and like a scene out of Guys and Dolls, he's got a babe on each arm. Hmm. Right? And I say, and I, I'm, I have no disapproval of this whatsoever. He was a young man in the prime of his life, perfectly okay with me. But he's the next day's starting pitcher. I say to Kubek, if he gets out of the third inning, I'll be surprised. Mm. And then I say, this is the one time, if my dad were alive, he would want this information. He'd want me to call him and let him know so he could get the right bet down. So I say, who do I know has a bookie? And I think of a friend of mine in St. Louis. And I call him up and I say, look, I want you to put $1,000 on the Braves tomorrow. The Cardinals were 9-5 to five favorites. Put $1,000 on the Braves. If we win, we'll split it. If we lose, I'll swallow it. Okay, this guy went out and threw a complete game two-hitter. Oh, man. And I was out, a, not, not just a grand, because it was nine to five. I was out 1800 bucks. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Last time I ever put a bet on a ball game. That's it. That's it. That's You know what, by the way, though, if you're going to do it, you best not win. Because the first time we ever bought a piece of a racehorse, he won and I've been chasing ever since. I would have never oh, done yeah. that ever again. If I had an experience similar to yours, I would have never gone down that road. That's amazing, though. You had, you had the intel, and it didn't matter. It goes without saying, it is summertime, and summertime is the best time. There is nothing about summer that isn't awesome. Well, one thing... 
bugs, insects, flies. Hate it. This is why I love my pals over at Dynatrap. Dynatrap, as you probably know, is the leading manufacturer of outdoor mosquito and insect traps. Now, what you may not know is they've come up with a solution for indoor pests, the Dynatrap Fly Light. The Dynatrap Fly Light works day and night to attract and trap flies, plus fruit flies, mosquitoes, other pesky insects. I've got one. It works beautifully. Trust me, in a couple of days, the Dynatrap Fly Light will catch an insane number of insects, which otherwise would be buzzing around your house, making you crazy. Get yours at Dynatrap.com. That's D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com. Enter my promo code ROAM and get 15% off any of their products. Once again, promo code ROAM at Dynatrap, D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com. Dynatrap, the safe, silent, and simple solution to household insect control. Let me ask you this, Bobby. We talk, you, and I'm sure you've had this conversation as well with athletes. We always talk about how hard it is for athletes to go out on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Very few of them actually do. Now, as you said at the very top, you are still really busy. Your career is far from over, but maybe I could say your time with NBC is. Yeah. I would argue, Bob, that you were the best and most respected sports broadcaster of this generation. I'm not fawning. I just believe that to be true. Were you able to go out on your own terms after nearly four decades at NBC? You know, I'll answer this honestly, and since you asked, I assume that you and at least some people are interested in this. I don't mean to seem as if I'm saying that everybody should care that much about what happens to my career or my life, but I am a little bit disappointed, and I take part of the blame for the way it ended. Not that it was terrible, but it wasn't as gracious as the nearly 40 years that I was there, which was mutually beneficial for me and NBC, and included a whole lot of wonderful experiences and lifelong friendships, friendships that will endure many years beyond now, Uh, so many wonderful collaborations. I was greatly appreciative of all the experiences that I was able to enjoy and all the, the friendships and professional partnerships. And we got to the end, and... There was the thing about uh, the Super Bowl in February of 2018, where Mike Tirico, who had succeeded me both as the host of Sunday Night Football and as the Olympic host, was to begin his first primetime hosting gig only four days after the Super Bowl in South Korea. So he couldn't be in two places at once. I had already stepped aside from football uh, two years prior, but they asked me if I would just come back and host that one Super Bowl because Mike couldn't be there. So I said, sure. And then a couple of months before that, I was at a journalism symposium at the University of Maryland, and people asked me about CTE and football, and I gave an honest answer, the type of answer I'd been giving, given and the type of commentary that I'd been doing for years about uh, the CTE crisis in football. Uh, but somehow this went viral, and um, people at NBC became concerned about whether I was the right person to host the Super Bowl, which they termed to be a day-long celebration of football. And not only did I not have a problem with that, I thought they were right. I had ambivalent feelings about football, and uh, they had a business interest to protect, so I thought that was perfectly fine. And then it got to the point where I realized that, look, 
They don't have baseball. Haven't had it for a long time. It's my favorite sport. They don't have the NBA. That's my second favorite thing. I did a dozen Olympics, and of my own accord, I let them know a few years before the Rio Olympics that that was going to be my last one, and I stepped aside. And they seem to be uncomfortable with my... Um, with my leaning toward journalism and toward commentary, maybe more so than most network broadcasters did. And so because they were uncomfortable with that, I was increasingly uncomfortable with my situation there. And we kind of mutually agreed that we should just settle it and part company. And that's, that's what happened. But then I made, and I, forgive me for this long-winded answer. Not at all, Bob. I, I made a mistake, and it's my fault. I agreed to speak with Mark Fainaruwada of ESPN. I did because any of us who follow sports um, in the modern era know what an important journalist he has been. Game of Shadows, League of Denial. And he told me that he wanted to do, in effect, an appreciation for the career that I had had at NBC and how I might have been different from some other network broadcasters. And he did a perfectly honest and professional job. But... The way the, what people focused on coming out of that was this notion that somehow I had been kicked off the Super Bowl and somehow I was mad at NBC, neither of which was really true. Uh, certainly the second part wasn't true. I was not mad at NBC, not at all. I'm appreciative and grateful to them, and I respect them. But you can't be a thinking person and be around something for 40 years and not have some disagreements not have some butting of heads, no pun intended, since we were talking about CTE. Um, yeah, there were times, but in the big picture, a very fruitful partnership and a lot of mutual appreciation. But I, it ended on a discordant note, because once you put something out there, um, it isn't just the content of the initial thing. When it goes into this world with the Internet and Twitter and everything else, it goes into a distortion machine. And so instead of what I hope is the nuanced answer I've given you, a lot of people took from this either that I was a hero and everybody at NBC was a villain, or on the flip side, that I was whining about something, even though I'd had a, a very fortunate career um, and NBC had enriched me in many ways, and now I was trying to take a shot at them on my way out the door, which was certainly not my intent. So long answer to your short question, uh, a wonderful 40-year run, and it was almost as if, um, you know, you, you had a great concert, the symphony was great, and the very last note was off-key. Um, and so I feel, I feel bad about that. And at least I've now gotten it off my chest. No, listen, Bob, anybody who hears that answer knows exactly how you feel about that situation and how that played out. I would ask you one quick follow. We're talking about an outside-the-lines piece, and yeah. you gave them a great deal of access. You gave them a great deal of time for that. Ultimately, ESPN says that you had wished that you had never spoken to outside the lines about any mm -hmm. of it, quote, the upside is not equal to the fear I have, end quote. What do you mean by that? Like, what were you afraid of? I actually wish I had said the concern I have. Sure. The concern was for what actually happened, that some people perceived that I was angry at NBC or taking shots at them or... A lot of people thought, hey, this is great, Costas is outspoken and he's telling the truth, and the people at NBC are the villains in this, and Bob is the hero, and neither of those things is correct. Uh, that's kind of, a, uh, you know, kind of a primary colors type thing without the appropriate nuance, but that's not because of anything that Mark Fainaruwada did wrong. It's because of what happens when it gets tossed out there into the hurly-burly and people pluck out of it what they want, and they, and they look for the thing that... Um, 
that kind of moves the needle and, and becomes clickbait. Again, not ESPN's part. They were the primary source for the story. But then after that, it goes out in several iterations. And I should have been sophisticated enough after all these years to realize that there was a risk of that. And as the story played out, um, it actually played out over the course of a year. The interviews that I did with them um, actually took place almost a year before they actually aired. And when I saw the direction in which the story was going, that's when I realized that even though everything I said was truthful and everything accurately reflected my feelings about a small slice of my career at NBC, the part that pertained to football at the end, it certainly didn't reflect, taken in isolation, how I felt about my overall tenure at NBC. So I could see where it was going, and it was at that point that I said to Mark, hey, I respect the hell out of you, and I know you're going to do a perfectly professional job, but I know what the fallout's going to be, and it's going to make me uncomfortable. It's not going to be a gracious ending, so I wish I hadn't done it. And I, I still feel that way. I talked to Mark about it only a couple of months ago. He and I became friends uh, through the process, and I said, I know you did a great job, and I have high regard for you, but I still wish I hadn't done it. No, you're right, Bob. I mean, you did your job. He did his job. But as you point out, once it goes through the distortion machine, it's completely out of your control, his control, and we know what happens. Then just finally about the NFL, if you were, in fact, you had your concerns, maybe you were ambivalent, as you were doing it, were you really conflicted? Did you struggle with that? Or as long as you had a platform to express those concerns, was it okay? I was conflicted to some extent, but you've hit upon an important thing. And this was another thing that annoyed me greatly. When people said, people who should have known better, they didn't have to do a deep dive into my entire body of work. A, a superficial understanding would have led them to realize that I had used that platform, I think judiciously, um, but I used that platform to address issues about the NFL that maybe someone like you would have addressed or maybe ESPN would have addressed on Outside the Lines or on some of their other programs. But on the actual coverage of games on network TV, I was talking about NFL issues that almost no one else would touch, and specifically about CTE, not once or twice, but many, many times. Going back more than a decade, I was ahead of the curve on it, and I returned to it many times in interviews and in commentaries. And if I hadn't been able to do that, then there's no way I could have possibly justified staying with football. But then as the years went by, um, then I became more and more conflicted. It started out with a little bit of conflict, and then the balance began, began to shift. Uh, and as we got toward the end of my deal and I was able to opt out after 2016, I told them in 2015 that that's what, what I intended to do. But those who said, and, you know, we live in a world where, People don't have to have that much accountability to the facts or, or fairness. Those who said, oh, now he's taking the shot when he's headed out the door, or is he going to give back the money he got for covering football, they weren't paying attention to how I covered football. Uh, I wasn't trying to burn the house down, but I was trying to reform the house or at least let the viewers know uh, of some of the issues that were there that other, others weren't shining a light on, and that's how I was able to justify my, my place on the football coverage. You bet. Now, Bob, you spent, we mentioned, you mentioned Redondo Beach way back in the day, but of course you spent most of your adult life in St. Louis, which is a great town. It's a tremendous sports town. Before I let you go, what did you make of the Blues winning their first Stanley Cup title ever last week and then the manner in which they did so? Just amazing. To be in last place 
at midseason. You want to talk about gambling? If you'd stop by Vegas and thrown a grand down, you might be looking at beachfront property on the Riviera right now. So that was an amazing thing. You know, there are only two professional sports teams, major professional sports teams in St. Louis. I don't think the NFL is ever coming back. It's been a long time since the NBA or the old ABA were there. So in the Cardinals, you have one of the most, one of the deepest and most enduring relationships between a team and a city in any sport anywhere, the Cardinals and St. Louis. And the Blues, although they're off until this year, they were kind of off the national radar for the most part. In St. Louis, they play to a very high percentage of capacity. They have a loyal fan base. They've always been a thing in St. Louis, and now that they've raised the Stanley Cup, I mean, no one's ever going to approach the Cardinals in terms of uh, a place in the, the hearts of St. Louisans, but, but the Blues are, are way up there. And it matters that there aren't as many alternatives. It's the Cardinals and it's the Blues, pretty much. So, Bobby, are you going to work your way back to the NBA? And it makes me think that you and I actually do have something in common. We both had a rather contentious conversation with David Stern. Now, I would imagine your, your experience was probably similar to mine. I had lots of really good conversations with David Stern and one really bad conversation with David Stern. What was your uh, relationship with him? And can you see yourself working your way back to the NBA in some capacity? Oh, I don't know that I would ever find myself back covering the NBA. I still follow it. Avidly, I still love the NBA, but those games are on outlets that I'm not likely to find myself at uh, again. Fair. But uh, I had one pretty contentious interview with David Stern during the 1993 finals between the Suns and the Bulls. But every year after that, he actually looked forward to the interview that we would do at halftime of one of the finals games. In fact, he would say to me when we'd cross paths, which we used to do very frequently when the NBA was on NBC, are you getting ready for our interview? Are you getting ready for our interview? Um, and anybody who thinks that David Stern can't handle Bob Costas or Jim Rome doesn't know of, of David Stern's history uh, as a lawyer at a high-priced firm um, and of his keen intellect. He, he looked forward to that kind of sparring. And I always respected the fact that he was willing to sit there and, and field the tough questions. And to me, and I'm sure you would have approached it the same way if you were in my seat, I would begin each of those interviews by saying, it's been another great year for the NBA, all kinds of terrific stuff. That's what we cover 99% of the time. During the next seven or eight minutes, let's get to some of the issues that every league faces, and you've got some too, so here we go. Uh, and then I just fired everything at him. I wasn't trying to ambush him, but I was trying to ask fair straightforward questions, and he appreciated that. And, you know, Bud Selig had his moments of controversy as commissioner of baseball, never said no. Rob Manfred, never said no. I didn't do that much with the NHL, but whenever I asked Gary Bettman, never said no. Um, at the beginning of his tenure, Roger Goodell did several interviews with me, but on the last few Super Bowls, um, he, he wouldn't do it. And to me, I like Roger Goodell personally, but to me, you're the commissioner of the NFL. Whatever network is carrying the Super Bowl is entitled to have a legitimate, not a patty cake interview, a legitimate sit-down interview with you because there are always issues surrounding the NFL, and here's a chance to address them in front of the largest audience in all of American television. And Goodell has sidestepped that the last few times, and that to me was disappointing. In fact, when uh, NBC said, and I think they were right, as I said earlier, to say it, when they said that I wasn't the right guy to host the Super Bowl in 2018, I said, you're right about that, but how about this? Why don't you ask Goodell if he'll sit 
for an interview with me. A live interview, carve out 15, 20 minutes. You've got a six-hour pregame show. This will be not only journalistically responsible, it'll be good television considering all the issues, domestic violence, franchise relocations, officiating, players kneeling, um, all that stuff. Uh, ask him if he'll do it. And they asked, and the answer came back very quickly. Nope, not going to do it. That was disappointing to me. Bob, finally then, and I'm not here to judge at all because I understand how this goes. Do you happen to know, do you think the network, do you think NBC in any way pushed back and said, now wait a minute, we pay an awful lot of money. I think that we should have some access. Or is the NFL just that powerful that nobody pushes back? I think what you just stated is pretty much the way it is. Um, I believe that the people at NBC have always been honest with me. Our occasional disagreements doesn't change that. Um, and I know that they asked Roger Goodell. Um, they realized that my suggestion made sense, that it would have been good TV, and I was the right guy to do it. And I would have been much more excited to do those 20 minutes with Roger Goodell than to host the whole six-hour wingding. Um, and I know they asked. But if I were to bet my life, I would say that the answer quickly came back, nah, I don't want to do it. And then their answer was, okay, what's for lunch? Well, Bob, I know that you know because you never forget anything. You were part of our very first episode of the Jim Rohn Podcast, and now you are the 87th episode. I want to pick my spot and make sure I didn't come back too soon, but I'm so glad that that I was able to get you back on and that you had time for it, Bob. That is a tremendous conversation and I appreciate you very much in all the interviews we've done over the years. Romy, I'm happy to do it, and sorry for the rambling. You know, if you give me an open-ended uh-uh. thing, sometimes I, I take advantage of it. I my hope f- I didn't uh, my friend, chew this your is, ear off. No, my friend, this is what this podcast, this is why we do this, right? Because you need long form, you need real estate, and you especially need some of that. So that was one of my favorite conversations you and I have ever had. Absolutely no apology necessary. In fact, I, I want to thank you very much for doing that, Bob. That was great. Cool, Jim. Thanks a lot. Fourth of July is right around the corner. So you want to prepare your vehicle for the 4th of July road trip right now by going to your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. Simple preventative maintenance like changing your oil and filter, topping off engine coolant, and checking belts and hoses can avoid costly repairs in the future and keep you safe. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts have the parts that you need at guaranteed low prices. So get your vehicle ready for the 4th of July travel today. So get your vehicle ready for 4th of July travel today. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts. Better prices every day. Enormous thanks to the legendary Bob Costas for that conversation. Really appreciate that so much. I would tell you to hit him up on Twitter, but you already know he does not have a handle and he has no interest in ever getting one. So instead, I'll tell you to get subscribed to the podcast because we have got a white whale of a guest coming up on Tuesday, July 9th. Not going to say who that is because I don't want to jinx it, but let's just say that I've been looking for this person for quite some time and I am hyped. And since that's July 9th, you can correctly assume that we are taking next week off for the holiday, so I will catch you right back here in two weeks. Until then, here are your beloved voicemails. First new message. What's up, Jim? Dr. Dave. Tyler and Matt, jeez, they make my my native Canadian parents look bad. They just need to be done with that smack-off. They've lost their golden tickets for the future. Let's bring back the hack-off. I'll gladly take my number two seat in there and kick Josh in Detroit's ass later.
Message deleted. Next message. Romers, Z Life from the 818. Anyways, I'm just calling your voicemail because I can't get through the phones. But Hawk, every time he picks up, he picks up like he's a gangster. He's like, hey, what's up? What do you want? Like, man, relax, bro. Like, hey, I'm calling in to the show. Like, you should be more courteous. You know what I mean? Like, that's why I can never get through because I get angry at Hawk, you know? He, he answers the phone like he's a, he's a shit. Hey, man, what's up? What do you want? Check your boy Hawk, man. Or, I don't know, if we could bring back, um, um, what's his name? The one that's in, in the morning, the one that does the NFL. It was nice. Hawk, he tries to be a gangster on, on the phone, man. And when he comes on TV, he's, he's over there with his things all buttoned up to the top and, and everything. Oh, yeah, 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 you know? No, I don't like that. I don't like that, man. You know? Get, 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 get Hawk together, bro. Get Hawk together. Message deleted. Next message. Hope Solo is going psychotic again. She's bleeping, killing the U.S. women's national team coach, saying she cracks under pressure, and we need help. Message deleted. Next message. What's up, man? This is David from Buffalo. Went back and uh, watched the smack off again. And I think it's funny how all these people, you know, went after the Cablin Asian. You know, all these people who called into the smack off would instantly trade the jobs they have probably right now for the jobs he's got covering the Texans and the other teams in Houston. I mean, you tell me that Matt from Vancouver wouldn't move across the country uh, to, to do what the Cabal Nation does? Of course he would. I mean, Dan in Denver, any of these guys, you know, Vic and NoCal, these guys would all trade that, you know, because the opportunity to cover sports for a living like you have, Romy, and all these other guys around the country have for years, it's freaking hard to do, man. So I'll take I'll take any thoughts on that. I'm looking forward to this week's podcast. That Garrett Ritt guy knows how to book. Message saved. Next message. Woo! We made it! Let's go! Message deleted. You have no more messages.